Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. We're going to turn, as we do most weeks at this time, to the world of COVID-19. Our guest, Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Swartzberg. Good morning. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Um, since it is our first post-holiday show, I thought we should take uh, the, the pulse of the pulse. Um, I was looking at the CDC's map for all influenza-like illnesses, and California is among the very dark red states, indicating we have uh, very high levels uh, of things that make people seek medical attention for uh, their lungs, throats, and noses uh, without identifying what the specific cause is. Uh, What's your sense of uh, how much is in circulation a week and a half after air travel peaked and, and people's social networks expanded for family gatherings? Well, compared to previous years, we're doing better. We're doing markedly better in reference to COVID, especially. Compared to where we'd like to be, that is the pre-COVID era or prior to four years ago, we're not doing well at all. We, we have consistently seen a rise in these influenza-like illnesses in terms of ER visits, in terms of hospitalizations, and also we're seeing a rise in deaths now. So that's very disappointing. The rise is primarily comprised of COVID, but influenza is not too far behind, and not too far behind that is respiratory syncytial virus, RSV. And then there's a whole slew of viruses and some bacteria that are also causing respiratory illnesses right now. We're in the midst of a uh, not good respiratory season, which is typically what we do see in December and January but still worse than pre-COVID. Oh, yeah. Um, Still worse than pre-COVID. And it's not clear exactly why. Uh, There's been people who have coined the term uh, immunity debt, um, saying that during those years where we were very careful not to get COVID, of course, that prevented all these other respiratory infections as well. And now there's a lot of people who are more susceptible because they don't didn't get that immunity boost from being sick, and they're now picking up uh, these other respiratory viruses. That's a hypothesis. It's it's tenable, um, but frankly, we're not exactly certain why. I think there's right. actually. I, uh, let me just say sure, one last about that, and that is um, the lack of people getting immunized is playing a a significant role. We don't see enough people getting immunized against not just SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, but influenza, and now we have a vaccine against RSV. Right. Well, uh, I mean, if we want to do a comparison, we can look at other countries with higher vaccination rates. Uh, The United Kingdom, Canada, they all seem to be having very high rates of hospitalizations with influenza-like illnesses as well right now. That's absolutely right. And that's why that the immunizations alone certainly cannot account for this. But I do think that um, the this immunity debt hypothesis that I was 
referring to is is likely playing somewhat of a role here but you know we're 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 doing this what's called ad hoc reasoning and that is we make an observation and then we go back and try and think of reasons for it and i don't think we're going to really understand what's hap- happened last year in the respiratory season this year until we have a few years away from it and look back i i think because you've mentioned the immunity debt hypothesis this is something i see misunderstood frequently the hypothesis is not that people are sicker because they didn't get sick in previous years it's not that they've been somehow weakened by not getting regular exposure to infectious agents it is that more people are sick at once because fewer people were sick at once in previous years it is the population as a whole making up for lost time perfectly put um, that's exactly what it is. People have said, well, gee, maybe we should have just gotten exposed to these viruses and bacteria uh, over the last four years, and then we wouldn't be having this problem now. Well, we would have been having the problem. It just would have been spread out over a longer period of time. But nobody's gotten sicker because of it. All right. Well, we have a, a whole lot of questions that have accumulated in the inbox over the past couple of years. Uh, I'll give out the phone number before we get into them. If you'd like to put a Corona Calls question to Dr. John Swartzberg, the phone number is 1-800-958-9008, 1-800-958-9008. Uh, as you would expect with the holiday surge, a lot of our questions come from people who have recently contracted COVID and are now trying to figure out best practices around isolation and breaking isolation. The first question comes from John, who says he's 73 years old, got COVID, took Paxlovid. Now he is 12 days out from his first day of symptoms and still testing positive, although he has no other symptoms at this point. He's wondering when it will be safe to end isolation and to stop masking. Yeah, John, that question comes up... um not infrequently. Typically, the CDC says that after 10 days and you're without symptoms, you can come out of isolation. But I know a lot of people who continue to test and they continue to test positive. Um, when I say a lot, the vast majority don't test positive at 10 days or on day 11, the day after your 10th day. Uh, but, but a lot of people do. And we don't know exactly what that means. A positive home rapid test suggests that you are contagious. What I've been telling people to do, and frankly, I'm not basing this on any strong science, is that if you're testing positive on day 12, assume you are still contagious and wear a high quality mask when you're around other people. If you're getting out past day 14, um, the chances of you spreading the virus are very, very low. So I think if if you're getting after, uh, out past two weeks since your illness, you've been asymptomatic, that is without symptoms for a considerable period of time, I, it's hard to imagine you're still contagious. So when you say the likelihood of spreading after day 14 is low, uh, even if you're still testing positive, like what what is that based on? Is that based on the epidemiological data, the, the contact tracing, the, the lack of evidence of people spreading the disease that far out from infection? Sort of all three of those. It's really the epidemiological evidence. You know, things in biology, like most things in life, are not binary. They're either yes or no. Um, 
there it's a bell-shaped curve and when you're getting out past day 14 and you're um, you're way at the end of the tail of the bell on one side and so the chances there's still the possibility but it's very very remote I think what I would do in terms of that calculus is say to myself, it's very unlikely I'm contagious, but I'm not going to be around, or if I'm going to be around people who are at high risk of a bad outcome, I'm going to wear a high-quality mask still until I test negative. So in in this case, I didn't read all of John's letter. In fact, I I paraphrased. I didn't quote any of it. Um, He is living with his wife, who I presume is around his age, um, and has managed to keep from passing COVID onto her during his 12 days of illness so far. Um, I I imagine he'd like to keep that stellar track record up until he's testing negative and uh, that it's also burdensome to be isolating within his own house from another member of his household. What, What would you do in his situation? Uh, that's a, a joint decision between John and his wife. Uh, it would depend, assuming his wife is in excellent health, um, she and he might make do that calculation and say, you know, it's it's very very unlikely, and we're going to stop wearing. I'm going to stop wearing a mask. Um, on the other hand, uh, if John's wife is still feeling anxious about getting it, it's so easy to continue to wear that mask and sleep in the other bedroom um, if possible. Um, it continue to do that. So I think you're at, at that point where science can't guide you. It's really that there's how much risk do you want to take? I'm still trying to wrap my head around the idea that the positive test itself wouldn't be the most solid signal of transmissibility to rely on. I mean, I I would assume, I do not have your training, but the the test is detecting the presence of the antigen, the virus, the thing that makes you sick. Um, If it's finding it in your nasal passage, you don't want to be breathing on people you don't want to get sick. Absolutely. You know, the the test is detecting... um, elements of the SAR of the virus's spike protein. And the we've been trying to find an explanation for why people don't appear to be contagious but still test positive. Again, this is not common. Um, and the answer appears to be that you can produce element pieces of the spike protein but not the entire virus and therefore are not contagious. Or the other hypothesis, and there's some science to back that up, is that the amount of virus you have is is low and um, probably not at a level where it's likely you're going to be contagious. I'd like to give an absolute answer like you're either contagious or you're not. Um, all of these dates, 10 days, 14 days, five days after symptoms, all of these are based upon this bell-shaped curve in statistics. And um, that's where I think each individual has to look at their circumstances and make a decision. There's one other thing I would add, and that is that we're assuming John and his wife were in very good health. We know that people who are immunocompromised can shed the virus for longer periods of time. And so what we're talking about right now, Brian, is really only in those people who are in very good health who get sick with COVID. All right. 1-800-958-9008 to put in a question via your Corona call to Dr. John Schwartzberg. 1-800-958-9008. First up on the phone lines is yet another John somewhere in the North Bay. Good morning, John. 
Hi. I'm <clears throat> safe up here in the North Bay so far. Um, my question, I've asked my pharmacist twice. Now, he, they offer all three shots that you can get them on the same day. Is that safe? And, I mean, would I expect any after effect? <clears throat> uh, that's my So COVID flu and RSV, that's what you're asking about? Right. And then afterwards, um, how long before the uh, immunity really kicks in for for the three combined? Okay, well, thank you, and uh, great show. Thank you. Well, John. Dr. Schwartzberg. John, you're asking. John's asking a very important question. Um, we have very good data now showing that you can get the influenza vaccine and the COVID vaccine at the same time. The immune response appears to be very good, and it appears to occur at the same period of time that we would expect if John got them uh, separately. So that period of time is after about a week, you have an immune response that's significant and probably quite protective. But we, we know that it peaks for most people around two weeks after you get vaccinated for both influenza and uh, COVID. So if you're trying to time your vaccines around something you're going to be doing, you want peak immunization or peak vaccine response, then it would be two, roughly two weeks after you got those vaccines. We don't have as much data uh, giving RSV at the same time as SARS or influenza, or excuse me, COVID or influenza. Um, the data we do have suggests that there's no problem doing that, uh, that the immune response appears to be very good, but we're just not on this solid scientific ground when we talk about RSV because it's only been available now for a few months. So that's uh, still a question mark in terms of optimal RSV immunity after you get that vaccine, it's also roughly around two weeks. So roughly about two weeks after you get your shots, you have a very, very good immune response. That's on the effectiveness side. What about on the side effect side? Is, is there a downside to getting multiple shots at once? Yeah, the side effect side is an important question. There have been um, studies now looking at influenza and COVID together. And of course, you're going to get two sore arms as opposed to one sore arm. Uh, so that's one of the things you have to expect. Um, second is that you may have a little more pronounced systemic side effects, body aches, just feeling very tired uh, than you would if you got them separately. So those are some things to also factor in. So if, if you're getting the two shots on a Friday and you have nothing to do that weekend, get them done. It's sort of one and done. On the other hand, if if you've got a critical meeting the next day or the day after that, you may want to space them out. Yeah, I mean, that, that matches my experience. The one time I got a, a COVID shot and a flu shot on the same day, like I, I needed a nap <laughs> the next afternoon, which I don't normally need. Um, it wasn't more significant than that, but, you know, it, it was compared to having basically zero effects when I got a COVID shot or a flu shot by itself. Right. Um, the the attractive thing about obviously about getting them together is that you're you've gone to the pharmacy or you've gone to your doctor's office, you've gotten your vaccines, and then you're through with it. And from a public health standpoint, we have years and years of uh, evidence that um, if you make if you try to create one shop stopping, you get a much higher rate of people getting immunized. Got it. 
1-800-958-9008 for your Corona calls. And let's take another one from the inbox. Uh, let's see. A person who did not sign their name at the bottom of the email wrote in to ask what happens when you're exposed to the virus and don't actually get sick. Is it possible that COVID stays in our body like herpes? Sure. Well, the I have to begin with a caveat, and that is we know an awful lot about what herpes does or herpes viruses do, um, and we don't know that much yet about what COVID does in terms of long-term. Herpes viruses, all of the herpes viruses, the most common one is herpes simplex, which I think um, this listener is referring to, they establish what we call latency in the body. That is, they establish latency often in nerve tissue, but some of the other herpes viruses in different types, parts of our body. And they remain there the rest of our lives. So if you've had chickenpox, for example, that virus, even if you had it as a kid and you're now 80 years old, that virus is still in your body in a latent state. <clears throat> and the same thing with herpes simplex and the other herpes viruses. There's no evidence that SARS-CoV-2 establishes that type of latency. But there is evidence that in some people, particularly those with long COVID, that you can find evidence of the virus in other parts of the body, especially the gastrointestinal tract. It's a little hard to find, but there have been studies that have shown this, and not not certainly in everybody with long COVID, or even if you don't have long COVID, but the viral persistent persistence, as opposed to establishing latency uh, with the herpes viruses, certainly does occur in some people after having a SARS-CoV-2 infection, even if you had no symptoms. Um, so the 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 studies that you're referring to are they detecting? actual reservoirs of live virus or are they detecting you know virus particles that just haven't been cleared by the body the studies most consistently have been showing the latter that is virus viral particles um, that haven't been cleared by the body we haven't completely ruled out uh, the ability of the virus to continue to replicate slowly in the body over months but there's just not a lot of data on that. But it's the viral particles that we're finding and are the viral RNA. I think to, to this comparison with herpes simplex viruses, an, an important distinction is they're radically different types of virus. COVID is an RNA virus. Herpes is a, a DNA virus. Um, my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that when uh, herpes enters that latent state, it is basically written itself into the DNA of some of your cells, which are capable, when you are stressed in the future, of spitting out new copies of the virus. Um, COVID doesn't have the same tool set. Right. It, it um, may not be written into the DNA, Um but it is inside of our cells in a latent state and then reactivates and causes the okay. symptoms. That's why people who have cold sores, which is herpes on the lips, where, where if they, for example, get exposed to a lot of sun or have 
of physiologic stress like a fever from another infection, these cold sores often break out again because the virus that's latent in some nerve tissue travels back down those nerves and causes a, a lesion or a few lesions. Got it. Thank you for that clarification. Uh, let's see. Let's take one more question. This comes from Jane, who is broadly concerned about uh, inflammatory processes with COVID and long COVID. She's wondering if there's any way to protect yourself from such inflammation uh, other than anti-inflammatory drugs. If, if Jane's referring to long COVID, um, the way to protect yourself is, of course, not getting COVID in the first place. Um, if you do get COVID and you've been vaccinated, that's going to significantly reduce your risk for long COVID. If you do get COVID and you take Paxlovid, it's going to significantly reduce your risk for long COVID. So there are important things to do. Three things, try not to get COVID in the first place. Be sure you're up to date with your immunizations for COVID and take Paxlovid if you get uh, uh, sick from COVID. Uh, that's gonna prevent, help prevent long COVID. Jane may be referring to the inflammation you get just from COVID. We know that it, any viral infection or any bacterial infection stimulates systemic inflammation. And that inflammation can be dangerous. Um, we know that people who, for example, who have had COVID, uh, particularly older people, are at high risk for up to a year for, another, for a heart attack. Uh, which may be precipitated by systemic inflammation. So again, the only way to prevent that is to either not get COVID in the first place, which is obvious, or if you do, if you're up to date with your immunizations, that's going to decrease the amount of, of response by your body, the inflammatory response. Uh, and it's also going to, uh, if you take Paxlovid, it's going to decrease the really the insult to your body that these viruses cause. And one of the manifestations of the insult is, inf is systemic inflammation. Mm. Um, on that note, I will ask a question that is not in the letters, but that has come up for a couple of my friends who got COVID for the holidays. When is it safe to resume, you know, heavy, heavy exertion and exercise after you've recovered from COVID? We don't know. Uh, there have been no studies about heavy exertion after having COVID. The, there's been, there's some data with other viruses that suggest that heavy exertion during an acute infection may blunt your immune response to that infection. So that's not advised. I think the common sense answer that makes, that works for me is if you are in the throes of an infectious disease, including COVID, and you're not well, listen to your body. Your body wants to rest, rest it. After you've gotten over the acute infection, resume your activities. I wouldn't go out and, and just pretend like you haven't been sick for two weeks. I would go back and gradually increase your activities. To, and listen, again, listening to your body in terms of how well it's performing with your physical activities. So it's more of a common sense answer than a, quote, science answer. But in, in the case of COVID, and specifically long COVID, one of the more enduring problems people with long COVID have reported is, is post-exertional 
malaise, you know, an intense mental or physical fatigue after a period of exertion. There, there's been some suggestion uh, that that's a condition you can trigger by pushing yourself too hard too soon after an infection. It's unclear whether pushing yourself too hard after an infection is going to make you make it more likely you're going to get these long-term problems from COVID. But it's important to note that while there are some groups of doctors, researchers who think that the, po- the, the long COVID symptoms of malaise and just profound fatigue, um, gradually increasing your exercise can help with that. And I think the data to support that is very, very weak. And uh, I think until we have good science to support what's the best thing to do, listening to your body and not going out and pushing yourself or going on a graduated exercise program should be done without consultation with someone who's very experienced with lung COVID. All right. Dr. Schwartzberg, thank you so much for, for spending this Tuesday with us. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, that does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for next week's, you can email coronacalls at kpfa.org. Or tune in live to Call In Live. Usually we air Monday mornings right after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA 94.1 FM in the Bay Area or kpfa.org anywhere in the world. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Tiegert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.